0: Talking history. This is news talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Augusto, Argus,
1: Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, the history of the European Space Agency and our fascination with exploring the final frontier. Europe's old towns why we treasure them and also what they hide about our continent's fraught history. And the lives and deaths of over 300 men, women and children buried in Dublin's Glasnevin Cemetery who died during the War of Independence and Civil War. You can email us your thoughts and views history at newstalk.com and we'd love to hear from you. Last week we brought you the story of the legendary Viking warrior who made his fortune as a mercenary before returning to be king. We also explored the history of watchmaking and fan- Find out how a Renaissance painting challenges our thinking about beauty. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the News Talk app powered by Go Aloud, our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with the history of the European Space Agency and our fascination with the final frontier and I'm delighted to be joined by Leo Enright. You'll recognise the voice straight away. I think it's the (laughs) finest voice on radio. He's a distinguished radio broadcaster, the former chair of the Irish Government Science Awareness Programme Discover Science and Engineering and is a former board member of the Board of Governors of the School of Cosmic Physics at the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies and he's one of a handful of journalists in the world who has covered the Space Shuttle programme since it began. Leo, you're very welcome. Thank you very much.
0: I think the audience can hear me blushing.
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, what about your own fascination with space? What inspires you as a boy to to really pursue this and to become such a great advocate for learning about space and exploration throughout your life?
0: Well, I think, to be honest, I'm like most people of my age. Uh, you'll, You'll hear it from all the, you know, famous space buffs like Bill Clinton and people like that, the Apollo moon landings clearly had the biggest effect. There's no question about that.
2: We copy you down, Eagle. Listen, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed.
0: I was at a very uh, impressionable age. I was in my mid-teens when uh, Neil Armstrong landed on the moon. And so it it was kind of inevitable that I began to take an interest um, but I think actually, oddly enough, again, the whole mix of science and art, what I think what really fired my imagination was, in fact, a film, 2001, A Space Odyssey, uh, that came out the same time, not just the same year, about the same time as Apollo 8, uh, which was the first mission to go round the moon that didn't actually land. And that happened uh, on television. I mean, this was extraordinary. In those days, there was no such thing as live television. There were no, uh, there were very few, maybe one or two, uh, broadcast satellites that had uh, were still experimental, and so it was very, very rare indeed to see a live broadcast from America, for instance. And here was live broadcasting from the lunar orbit, and uh, on on Christmas Eve. 1968, the astronauts broadcast an extraordinary message to the world as we watched the lunar surface roll underneath. At the same time, I, w- I was going down uh, to Nassau Street uh, in Dublin to Cinerama, which was a, a cinema that sadly has- is long since gone and a format that is long since gone, very sadly, which was a wraparound cinema. It was a gigantic screen uh, that covered, you know, well, let's say 90 degrees of your vision out in front. It was really quite amazing, things on your left side and your right side. And one of the first films to be shown in Cinerama was 2001, A Space Odyssey. And that opening sequence uh, where the Earth rises from behind the moon, it was literally you were watching art replicating reality, Because we had just seen that from Apollo 8. And here it was done by Kubrick, you know, two or three years earlier uh, using papier-mâché models. And it just inspired me. And you were there in Houston,
1: Texas, for so many of the space shuttle launches and so many of those missions.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was in Houston for the last moon landing. Um, I actually sat in the control room in mission control uh, throughout the moonwalks uh, of Apollo 17. Um, which was uh, just the most amazing experience. I had been to the launch at uh, Cape Canaveral, um, and as everybody knows, for political reasons, a uh, pure pork barreling, uh, the Americans launched from Cape Canaveral, but in fact, they controlled the mission from Houston, uh, which was Lyndon B. Johnson's uh, constituency. So he made sure that uh, most of the action happened in Houston and made sure that the first word from the moon would be Houston. Uh, So Houston, tranquility base here, the eagle has landed, uh, those famous words. Well, I was in that same control room where where they received that message several years later um, during Apollo 17. And um, that really was also something that fired my imagination because to actually see these young men, very few women, there were one or two, uh, but it was very striking that it was young men they weren't much older than me I was a schoolboy I was only 17 at the time but it's really quite striking you know most of the uh, the controllers who brought these astronauts down onto the surface of the moon were still in their 20s it's extraordinary
1: And you were also in the United States, not at the, not at Cape Canaveral, but you were in the United States on another, uh, on another science exploration mission when, uh, the Challenger exploded in 1986 and were broadcasting a few minutes later to Pat Kenny. Cause the, was it the Voyager was That's right.
0: I was actually in Pasadena, California, um, which is my favorite space center. It's the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. That's the mission control for uh, America's, not Europe's. I mean, Europe has its own mission control for planetary missions, but the American mission control is by and large in uh, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. So I've been going there for more years than I like to remember. And I was there for a a Voyager 2 flyby. I believe it was Uranus. But uh, we had just watched... Um, the planet Uranus disappear into the distance through the rearview mirror, as it were, of Voyager 2. And we're getting ready that day to have a big celebration uh, at the lab uh, to celebrate the success of the flyby, which had been an amazing experience in itself. Uh, I was in uh, my hotel room. It was early morning in California. And uh, I I just stepped out of the shower when the shuttle took off. And of course, uh, as we know, um, the unfortunately uh, seventy-two seconds later, it uh, it didn't quite blow up. People say it blew up. It, it disintegrated. Uh, the big ball was actually not a fireball. It was gas. And uh, I knew the crew. This was, the, you know, this is one of the difficult things about covering these events. Uh, I I was, you know, per, knew personally and liked the crew members. The only crew member I didn't know, oddly enough. Was the teacher Krista uh, McAuliffe, who was, of course, made the mission famous. Otherwise, it was barely had been noticed. But the other crew were seasoned astronauts that I used to drink with uh, in the the, out, the outback in uh, in Houston, and um, it it really was a shock to all of us that you know were close to the program. My job is to report on the bad as well as the good. Uh, And certainly, you know, the the years following, I spent a lot of time in committee rooms uh, listening with shock to the simple mistakes that were made. But yes, uh, the first person I spoke to that day was Pat Kenny. Um, We were on the air within seconds of the uh, accident and I was the first European journalist to be on air uh, reporting on it. We invited you on the show, well, because
1: we love hearing you talk about <laughs> space exploration and your your great passion for it. Uh, I suppose the opportunity was the, the anniversary of Ireland joining the European Space Agency in May 1975. Can you tell us first about the European Space Agency and
0: when it was set up and why it was set up? Well, e- ESA, as we call it, the European Space Agency, is an interesting confection. Um, what happened was the Europeans had two separate agencies. They had an agency for building satellites and an agency for building rockets. And Ireland was never a member of either of those. Eldo was the, uh, was the rocket uh, one and uh, Ezra was the, the satellite one. Uh, and uh, for some, well, for pretty clear reasons, Ireland hadn't joined either of these because, uh, you know, we were not a rich country. To be blunt, we were poor, very poor. And, uh, you know, people of a certain age, such as myself, will remember when Ireland was poor. And really, you know, it's shocking when you think back just how how backward the country was. And then, it, but for some reason, in fact, I know why, it was a fantastic man called Michael Mannahan. Uh, in the Department of Industry and Commerce. Michael uh, was a brother of the great Anna Manahan, the actress uh, that older people will remember very fondly, fine actress. But Michael was one of those civil servants who understood how to do things, how to get things done. He understood how the wheels of government worked. And, you know, a good civil servant is worth 10 senior ministers. Um, they 'll get things done in ways that ministers simply cannot and you know there is there may be lessons currently uh, in that however Michael uh, spotted an opportunity to join a an affiliate group uh, that wasn't actually formally members of either of these but gave us some speaking rights and what it also gave us it turned out was the right to be a founder member of the agency that was created when the two big uh, separate agencies came together. And so as a result of Michael Mannahan's foresight, uh, the country was in a position to join the European Space Agency at the start. So we're not just members of the European Space Agency. We founded the thing and we should be very proud of that. So t- tell us about our involvement then, and maybe even maybe
1: some of the background because we were interested in science and astronomy, and all this going back, I suppose, seventeenth, eighteenth century with the Dunsink Observatory, the work of William Rowan Hamilton. Uh, you see a lot of the the, the telescopes, the in you know that we did have an interest in space and exploring uh, what was out there. Really going back centuries.
0: Yeah, you're really, really not going back far enough at all, because uh, Irish involvement in space exploration, I maintain, and, you know, I mean, there's very good authority for this, goes back five and a half thousand years. I mean, it is just extraordinary. When you look at Newgrange, Brune um uh, uh, on the banks of the River Boyne, um This is uh, one of the most extraordinary uh, constructions in Europe uh, ever. And uh, it was built a thousand years before the pyramids of Egypt. Uh, So this is an ancient, ancient construction. And it was built, it is believed, and there's reasonable uh, authority for this, it was built in part uh, as an astronomical observatory, as people know, uh, the light box above the entrance allows the light in only on the winter solstice and that's of enormous significance because the people who built newgrange we know very very little about them virtually nothing uh, we don't know their language we don't really we know something about their culture because we find artifacts but um we do we do know that they were farmers and that they were the first farmers Uh, To come to Ireland. And so for that reason, I often suspect it's not entirely impossible. It's entirely possible uh, that in this culture, it was a woman who decided to do this because uh, historically women are associated with uh, with farming because, of course, the men were out, you know, the big brutes were out killing things. Uh, They were out hunting while the gatherers and the farmers were the women. And so it wouldn't surprise me at all to discover that the architect of Newgrange was a woman because it it was exactly what you needed if you were beginning the science of farming. You had to know about the seasons. You had to know when when to plant the corn. And so uh, it's it's an amazing tribute to a civilization that we know nothing about, but they're still here.
1: And fast forwarding then to the 20th century, you have the creation of the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies. And that seems to have done, you know, I don't think it's well known now, but it seems to have done very significant work in the 40s, 50s, 60s that I think
0: helped Ireland when it was getting involved in all these different things. Oh, very much so. I mean, I have a very special place in my heart for the Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies. I was involved as a young, when I, even, you know, when I was a student uh, writing about the space program, it was one of the – I used to spend long hours uh, with the scientists at, at uh, the Institute for Advanced Studies at the time in Merrion Square, the School of Cosmic Physics there. Um, it, this was a, a, an extraordinary breakout by uh, the Irish government and in particular Emma de Valera, uh, who was Taoiseach at the time when it was founded. De Valera is not well liked in my family and it's nothing political. Uh, the simple reality is that my grandfather was a mathematician and Eamon de Valera was a mathematician. And every job that came up in every school around Dublin, both my grandfather and Eamon de Valera would fight over it to try and get the, the good job, the plum job. And my grandfather never forgave de Valera for getting that great job in Black Rock Um, So the family is a bit, we're not wild about the De Valera's for that reason. But De Valera had the foresight to see that if we were going to advance as a country, we needed to do something big. Um, And he stood up in uh, the Oireachtas, in the Shannon, as it happens to, to move the bill uh, back in 1942, I believe. Um, It must have been 42, I guess, because it was uh, when Germany invaded Holland, the day Germany invaded Holland. There were 800 civilians killed in bombings that day uh, in Holland. And de Valera stood up in Shanaderen and, and declared that uh, he was moving this bill, that, uh, that people would wonder why he's doing this in the middle of this mayhem. And he essentially said to the assembled uh, uh, senators, he said, somebody must think of the future and uh, it was very prescient we've had uh, great success through the institute for advanced studies and other uh, similar institutions around the country that were seeded, as it were, by people who uh, go, cut their teeth at the Institute.
1: And lots of things that, you know, I don't understand, but, you know, sounds hugely impressive work on cosmic ray and element particle research, identifying charged particles using solid state nuclear track detectors. You know, this was,
0: this was really high level work. Yes, I mean, the, the cosmic rays are the messengers from, they're intergalactic messengers. Literally, um, we can learn things and receive signals, as it were, from other galaxies by studying the nature of these uh, tiny particles that arrive, uh, you know, after traveling for millions of years uh, through intergalactic space. And uh, O'Callagh, who was the uh, first professor, senior professor at uh, The School of Cosmic Physics. He was a pioneer of building detectors that could detect these particles and capture them. Uh, And then, uh, two very fine uh, scientists, um, unfortunately, one of them is no longer with us, but uh, Dennis O'Sullivan and Alex Thompson in the Institute uh, began collaborating with a team in the United States to develop even more sophisticated uh, detectors that could literally capture these messengers from other galaxies. They flew uh, the first experiment, the first Irish experiment ever launched into space uh, was a detector aboard an American spy satellite back in the very early 1960s. The detector was flown and then the spy satellite, they didn't reveal it at the time, but the spy satellite had a camera inside which was then uh, parachuted back to Earth. They took out the film and got all the secrets uh, from the pictures. But uh, when the Irish team went to ask them, uh, said to them, well, look, we can't really analyze these, uh, these detectors unless we know the thickness of the, um, of the satellite wall. You know, how thick is the wall of the capsule? And the, the American said, we can't tell you that. It's a secret, sir. So that experiment didn't go well because they literally could not analyze their data. But they ended up on the moon. That was the big thing with that team. They actually landed uh, the first Irish experiment on the surface of the moon uh, in 1972 aboard Apollo 16. And uh, it was a great success and led to more, um, more experiments aboard the space shuttle. The biggest experiment ever flown aboard the American space shuttle was built in Dublin. Not many people know that, but the long-duration exposure facility was a vast uh, thing, the size of a school bus, that was launched into space aboard the space shuttle Challenger. Sadly, the one that blew up later in a, on a later mission, and um, it was uh, it it was a lot of the detector uh, area of that uh, satellite. When you look at it, you can actually see the Dublin instruments. And uh, they were built by Jerry Daly, the great Jerry Daly, who was the technical officer in the Institute, in his garage uh, on the Boroughfield Road in Baldoyle. And that brings us
1: up to the to the period of the European Space Agency and our involvement there. And it seems that Ireland contributed, you know, ideas, technologies, companies were involved, but also contributed people who who worked on some of these important missions.
0: Yes, indeed. I mean, I'm hoping uh, next uh, next month, uh, early next month, to meet up again as I do very often when I'm in Germany with Mike Mackay, for instance. A, a good example. Mike is a, is a proud Belfast man. And Mike was the um, uh, the flight controller, the chief uh, of the mission to Mars, the Mars Express mission, which is celebrating its twentieth anniversary in a few weeks' time. Uh, it's been in orbit around Mars for twenty years and is still operating. Um, which is a, an amazing achievement by the Europeans. And uh, there will be a gathering uh, at the Space Center, as I said, a couple of weeks from now. And I'm looking forward to seeing Mike there because uh, he'll certainly be one of the people who's fated for his achievement and getting that thing safely to Mars orbit.
1: And what do you think is the future for us when it comes to space exploration? Are, are we going to contribute astronauts? You definitely see people training, men and women. Uh, are we going to contribute in terms of the technology and the scientific advancements? Because I think there is still that huge desire and passion to find out
0: more and find out what's out there. Oh, yes. I mean, there's no question that there will be an Irish astronaut. Now, let's be clear. There have been half a dozen Irish citizens in space, so you know there have been plenty of Irish "quote unquote" astronauts in space. They all happened to have been born in America, but they held Irish passports. Um, so you know, it's it's it, it, it's the head of the space shuttle program for ten years, Brian O'Connor was an Irish citizen. So um, you know, we we, we have got. Pedigree in this regard, but I—it's I, only a matter of time before an Irish person goes into space. You know, I—I'm quite uh, cynical about this. Uh, you know, all this talk about uh, you know people being fated, uh, you know, about them being the neck—the first Irish astronaut. I've been hearing this for thirty years and uh, you know i'll i'll believe it when i see it but i will see it at least i hope i live long enough to see it uh, and most likely that person um is uh, if if they're going to walk on the moon for instance or walk on mars they could very well already be you know in college so you know we're that close to sending the first crew to mars And there's nothing to stop Irish people from being involved. The only real impediment and the reason, you know, we're constantly, oh, disappointed every applicant, you know, people apply and they're disappointed. But it will happen, certainly, because Irish people are at the forefront of the European Space Agency and sooner or later it will
1: happen. Well, my thanks to the brilliant Leo Enright for joining us tonight to talk about the history of the European Space Agency, but lots more besides in terms of Ireland and the final frontier. We're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll be going back in time to old towns and what they tell us about our history. So stay with us on News Talk. Welcome back to Talking History. Historic quarters in cities and towns across the middle of Europe were devastated during the Second World War. Some, like those of Warsaw and Frankfurt, had to be rebuilt almost completely. They are now centres of peace and civility that attract millions of tourists. But the stories they tell about places, peoples and nations are selective. They are never the whole story. Well, a new book explores seven old towns from Frankfurt and Prague to Vilnius in Lithuania to show how they've been used since the Second World War to conceal political tensions and reinforce certain versions of history. The book is called The Stories Old Towns Tell, A Journey Through Cities at the Heart of Europe. It's published in hardback by Yale University Press. The author is Marek Khan. And Marek, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you very much for having me. In your introduction, uh, when you discussed these seven symbolic quarters, you mentioned that, in a way, the book was inspired by a project you were involved with in 2017 when you were asked, do you have a favourite place in Europe? How did that prompt uh, this new study?
2: Well, I've just thought about it for a moment and I just thought, it's the old town. And I, I knew in that moment that it wasn't a, a particular old town. It was a sort of... Uh, archetypal grand old town that, that represented mysterious old beautiful magical europe wouldn't it be great to visit all these old towns wouldn't it be great to write about it i realized that this kind of had to be about the 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 heart of europe that was most transformed most most traumatized most devastated during the middle of the 20th century, this band of middle Europe stretching from Germany through Poland, as far as Lithuania. And so those were the towns that I I concentrated on. And to be honest, I'm of uh, Polish as well as as a British background and knew that I had to return home. The very first old town, uh, I don't feature it in the book, but the first time in my life was was, Torun in Poland, where my Members of my family still live. My first journey across Europe through the heart of Europe was on a train long, long ago during the Cold War, where I passed through the Iron Curtain, that all the signs of, of the Second World War. Um, you could still see some of them bomb sites even. And this really shaped my perception throughout my life. Coming back to stories of war and stories above, more importantly, of reconstruction was a natural journey for me.
1: And you mentioned in your introduction the visit of President Joe Biden to to Poland uh, shortly after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And he gives his speech outside the the Royal Castle at Warsaw. And he's making these links between what was happening in 1944 in Warsaw and what was happening at that time and still going on in Ukraine.
2: That's right. Uh, the thing about, about old towns is that uh, Reconstruction, isn't a one-off event old towns are always works in progress they're continually being revised and well i think of it being a writer i think of it as as as, as being rewritten uh, the stories that they tell are not just stories that were set out in stone 70 years ago in the reconstructions after the war or any other time they're they're still going on and and when president biden went to 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 the old town of warsaw the the royal castle and the uh, the old town proper are really one uh, symbiotic complex in in the heart of the city. Uh, he was continuing to tell the story. And what he did there was interesting because he took a national story, uh, the story of Polish resistance, Polish. Uh, uh, resistance against the Nazis in the war. The old town was uh, one of the bastions of, of the, the the Polish resistance in the Warsaw Uprising, and he universalized it. He said, "This is a place that represents humankind's quest for for, for freedom, not just not just that, uh, not just the quest of any one nation. So this is about all of us. It's a universal story."
1: And you explore in the book what stories these reconstructed old towns tell us, but also perhaps what stories they could tell us, and perhaps what's missing and what's left out of it. So
2: what stories do you think they do tell? Well, to start off with, some of the most striking examples are are Warsaw and Vilnius, uh, the capitals of Poland and Lithuania, where they've been very clearly configured in there as places, symbolic quarters, that tells stories about the nation so in poland in warsaw in the in the second world war the old town symbolized uh, uh, the the uh, crimes committed by the nazi occupiers uh, and the destruction that the that the city suffered because that very little of the the old town was intact after the war and the the nazis as they prepared to leave the city destroyed as much of it systematically as they could that wasn't already destroyed so the reconstruction of the old town was really the final act of re- resistance it was saying we're not going to, to 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 accept this we're not going to just leave it in ruins we are going to rebuild and we're going to rebuild it in a, in, a, in a in an immaculate idealized form and uh, the 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 well-kept facades uh, of the the old town nowadays uh, symbolize that that determination. But it also told another story, which was the story that the new communist regime wanted to tell. The official story was, this is our defeat of a a neighboring imperial oppressing power of Germany. And that what they didn't want people thinking was, yes, but we're now under the thumb of a uh, the other neighbouring oppressing imperial power, the Soviet Union. So the Polish government needed to present itself, the new regime needed to present itself as a national patriotic regime. And by getting, uh, taking the lead in the reconstruction and the the communist leader putting himself at the forefront of the reconstruction uh, of the old town, it said, we are a truly Polish national regime not just a, a, a communist one. So move forward several decades to the early 90s in when the, that imperial power collapses um, and um, Lithuania breaks away from the Soviet Union. huge amount of energy uh, was, was put it, uh, by, by the new uh, Lithuanian state into configuring the, the middle of the city as a kind of uh, diorama, a, a spectacle of... Lithuanian history, they uh, they went to the trouble of actually rebuilding a, a, a palace just outside the uh, the old town boundary. Uh, in a highly symbolic area uh, where the city was founded. And the uh, thing about this reconstruction was it wasn't a replica because nobody actually knows what it looked like. Um, the, the building fell into disrepair in the 18th century because it wasn't in much in use and there weren't really any good pictures of it. So it's an imagined reconstruction. And the adjoining old town, which is noted for its uh, Baroque architecture. It serves a similar similar purpose, it says, we Lithuanians brought European culture in the form of Baroque architecture up here into the north, northeastern parts of Europe, so we were an outpost of the finest, finest flowering of, of European culture these national stories continue to to be told. It's Vilnius' 700th anniversary this year and the stories are uh, thriving as as much as they ever have. And you
1: think that perhaps better stories or different stories could be told and that perhaps uh, our visits to these old towns could be used to promote belonging, empathy and maybe uh, suggest a different message to people?
2: Yes, there's room for more stories. These simple stories about nationhood or local identity or whatever it is they don't have to be exclusive there's there's room for wider stories more stories interwoven stories which enrich the whole and one thing that is common to many of these old towns and indeed to the countries in 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 which they're found is that there's a, a historic delay in the taking up of stories about Jewish presences, the vanished Jewish communities of of, of these towns and cities, uh, there are a lot of reasons for that. Some of which we can be more sympathetic about than than others. But Vilnius is actually a, a, quite a good example of, of, of what's happened, of of this process that the one part of the old town that was strikingly uh, neglected during Soviet times and and post-Soviet times, all despite being really close to the center of the old town, was the Jewish quarter, and uh, buildings were left in a very dilapidated condition. um, Raising some questions really about how to remember some communities and relationships that had been problematic, that had been difficult in the past, it's not too late. Because you can value communities that are no longer there, as part of uh, part of your history, even if those histories were 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 difficult and conflicted.
1: And is there that sense that uh, we see some stories when we do these visits, but that there is hidden stories as well? Because we can analyse, as you do so well, not just what's there, but also what's not there.
2: It's the stories that the old towns don't tell that uh, are interesting, shall we say, to try and pick out. So one thing I'd, I'd really like to to encourage, and and now that I find myself doing it in, when I'm visiting an old town, is walking around and looking up, looking down, and seeing what is there and what isn't there, what kind of things are remembered, what kind of things uh, are still in a state, a, a state of disrepair, uh, what what things aren't being presented to the to the public.
1: And do you think that in some ways then, by looking at all of these, we see how countries and cities try to interpret or try to present their own history and that they, there are certain parts of the story they want to hide and certain parts of the story that they're maybe embarrassed about and that it's always about projecting a certain kind of image which may not be the truthful image.
2: Yeah, and it's not entirely straightforward um, even when a when a city uh, tries to present itself as, for example, multicultural um, or having a multicultural history, well, maybe that covers up a, a, a tensions uh, in, in, in those histories, uh, difficulties in the relationships between those, those various cultures that compromised history up until really recently. On the other hand, it can be a, a positive. It can help to actually, in fact, to regenerate an old town. Lublin a city in south eastern Poland has uh, an old town that well it's still fairly patchy actually but but uh, uh, was like many old towns in a state of disrepair for much of uh, much of the past two centuries that's the thing about old towns is that uh, until relatively recently uh, they were regarded as problems for modern cities rather than solutions and treasured highlights.
1: Well it's a fascinating new study uh, published in hardback by Yale University Press. It's called The Stories Old Towns Tell A Journey Through Cities at the Heart of Europe The author is Marek Khan and Marek thanks so much for joining us tonight
2: Thank you very much indeed.
1: We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Welcome back to Talking History A new book explores the lives and deaths of over 300 men women and children buried in Dublin Glasnevin Cemetery, who died due to the War of Independence and Civil War. And through the exploration of seemingly ordinary burial records, extraordinary events are revealed. The book is called Casualties of Conflict. Fatalities of the War of Independence and Civil War in Glasnevin Cemetery. It's published in hardback by Mercier Press. The author is Conor Dodd, who's an historian for Dublin Cemetery's Trust. And Conor, you're very welcome to the show tonight.
3: Thanks for having me. Can you tell
1: us first about Glasnevin Cemetery and its place in, I suppose, Ireland's history and its significance?
3: Yeah, Glasnevin is is a remarkable place in many ways. A lot of people would know it as the, the burial place of Daniel O'Connell and Charles Stewart Parnell and Michael Collins and so on. The space itself is, is quite an interesting one, an important one, going right back to its foundation in 1832, because it was part of those campaigns by O'Connell and the Catholic Association in terms of trying to gain equal rights for, for Catholics. And it was set up as a non-denominational cemetery uh, for, for people of all religions and none. And one of the interesting things about it at that time was that there was a very clear view that Glasnevin was going to be this, this national pantheon and you can see that in terms of the early burials um and i suppose the way in which the the space is is curated and that progresses throughout the the 19th century but what's interesting during that time is it becomes increasingly important to a a wide variety of of different groups you know young Irelanders, the the, the Irish republican brotherhood fenians um and, and others and that progresses on to a point when you reach, I suppose, the the, the the revolutionary period a century ago, where it has a, a great political significance and importance, and you see the O'Donovan Rossi funeral happening in 1915, and from that point on, the burials of very well-known and prominent people take place throughout that, that revolutionary period. But what's important not to forget amongst all of that is the fact that Glasnevin primarily is a very important place for the people of the, the, the city of Dublin and its surrounds, and you have that primarily as its purpose in terms of a burial place for for that population.
1: And we see that very clearly in the stories that are explored and revealed in this book. And it provides, I think, a new perspective on the War of Independence and the Civil War.
3: Yeah, I think you, you get a good sense, I suppose, of not just those well-known names, but all of those people who, who died during that period. And although it's it's a list of biographies of those who are buried in the cemetery. You can really see how the conflict progresses during that time, from the initial slow burn, I suppose, of the War of Independence in in Dublin and beyond, to much more regular events in terms of ambushes um, and 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 deaths occurring throughout the the city. And you can certainly see as well. I suppose the different types of, of of warfare that's that's involved. You can see some of the more controversial events of the period as well in terms of targeted killings, such as 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 the curfew killings that occurred, which were with not without controversy at the time, and also assassinations of of, of people like Philip John O'Sullivan and Tobias O'Sullivan, um, the, the the latter Dan and Kerry, who were district inspectors in 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 the RIC, um, and. Among all of that, obviously, you have the civilian deaths and also the dramatic events of things like Bloody Sunday and the burning of the Custom House as well. And that progresses through to the Civil War as well. You can see similarly that.
1: The research is really impressive in the book because it's one thing to to reconstruct the life and death of, of the person buried in Glasnevin. But you're also exploring what happened to the family members, for example, in the case of Patrick Perry and what happened to uh, Rose Byrne, who was his partner, but not his wife, because she already had a husband and you were able to explore what happened to her afterwards and you get a great insight into into dublin society into irish society
3: yeah that was that was one of the important things, certainly when I began researching the book, and one of the things that I wanted to to place within it was that sense of i suppose some of the trauma that surrounded these deaths and certainly the case of 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 Rose Perry was was one of them. Um she uh had had married herself in 1911. She had had two children with her husband. Um he had left in the midst of the, the the First World War and never came back and she began a relationship with with Patrick Perry and they left Ireland. They went to Scotland. They had children there themselves. She began referring to herself as Rose Perry even though she couldn't remarry because her her husband was was still alive, but they're very much a family. And he enlisted in the national army during the civil war. Uh, went down to Cork uh, and was involved in the landings so at that, Passage West. And unfortunately, was killed then in the advance towards towards Cork. And this left obviously Rose Perry in in the situation whereby she had four children, two of whom were were, were Patrick Perry's, and she wasn't actually. Uh, informed of of his death, she wasn't present at his funeral. She was actually her children were in at the time of his death were in the South Dublin Union. She was in hospital, um, and she managed to to get a job for herself in 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 the hospital in which in in which she was a a patient, and. um Unfortunately, she had a, a scenario where one of the doctors that was there thinking that he was helping her decided to actually write in to try and gain some sort of uh, pension or money for her to to assist her. And there's a very sad letter, really, that, that you see that she writes in explaining her circumstances, essentially begging that they don't write back to the doctor and say, well, actually, she wasn't married to, to this man who was was killed. Um, and from there kind of progresses this situation and, and, and scenario where Rose herself doesn't really want anything, you know, in terms of controversy coming upon herself, um, which you can understand at the time in terms of the societal pressures. And also as well, you have Patrick Perry's mother who's trying to claim a pension herself and is getting the local parish priest to write in about how their, their marriage wasn't valid. And it opens up this whole debate um, about what were described at the time as unmarried wives and, you know, uh, to quote it, illegitimate children. Um, and uh, she she's in the midst of, of all of this. So you can see, I suppose amongst the stories that are included in the book, you, you see the accounts of people who who not just, um, you know, were impacted by the deaths of their loved ones, but also in many cases witnessed them. And then you see beyond that as well, a certain level of, of, of trauma amongst those who are, are, are left behind. So there, there's a lot to unpack within it.
1: And Rose ends up having to put the children into the, the orphanage and I think supports them, gives a, a certain amount of subsistence every week. But that must have been incredibly heartbreaking.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. It must have been. And, uh, not only that, you know, um, you know, she, 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 she herself, you know, fe- fe- fell, fell uh, upon very hard times, but she still, as you say, she still, uh, contributed towards the, 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 the maintenance and, and upkeep of her, of her children. But I suppose it's one of those stories that you couldn't, you couldn't help but look at it and, and, and feel uh, empathy towards the, the, the scenario and the situation that she found herself in. But as you say, it gives us that great sense of society during the period.
1: Tell us about the curfew killings because you've mentioned them and you know they appear in the book as well in particular with the case of Peter O'Carroll.
3: Yeah, there were there were a number of, of curfew killings as they were called at the time that occurred thr- throughout the city um, and and as it happens probably one of the, the, the more well known ones now is is that of Peter O'Carroll he was in, in his 60s at the time of his death he didn't take any active part in the Rising or the War of Independence but he was an old IRB member uh, he did things like buy weapons and equipment uh, from British Army soldiers in Dublin and passed them on to the volunteers and later the IRA and uh, his children his his sons and daughter were involved in the, the volunteers and coming on. Um, So this naturally brought quite a bit of attention upon him. Uh, The house and shop that he lived in was regularly raided at at Manor Street. Uh, And on one um, occasion in October of 1920, uh, there was a knock on the door. Himself and his wife were in bed. They assumed that the house was going to be raided again. And he went downstairs and all that his wife heard was a muffled sound, nothing more. And... After a period of time, she decided to go downstairs and found him dead on on the floor, uh, surrounded by by a pool of blood. And it was a very mysterious killing at the time, gained an awful lot of attention naturally. But within the IRA itself, they suspected that uh, a well-known intelligence officer called Jocelyn Hardy was responsible for that, that killing. And they did, they did target him, but were were, were never never successful um, in, in in that regard. And probably one of the reasons that Peter O'Carroll is is, is so well known today is because his his grandson is is Brandon O'Carroll, the, the comedian.
1: We also see uh, the killings of the Squad. Michael mm-hmm. Collins is a famous, infamous uh, uh, group of hitmen, and uh, the first death listed in the book is of Patrick Smith, who was killed by the Squad.
3: Yeah, Patrick Smith, he was, he was a target, um, I suppose for, for, for a period of time in that he, he, he was a member of G Division of the Dublin Metropolitan Police. He was originally from Longford. Uh, he lived in, in Drumcondra. Um, and he was a bit of a, a thorn really in the side of, of a number of prominent members of the, the volunteers, including, uh, the likes of Michael Collins and Pierce Beasley and, and, and others. And they decided that they were going to, to target him and, and shoot him. And this was the first kind of formal operation that was sanctioned in, in that regard. And a group of men followed him home. Uh, they shot him a, a number of times, but he actually managed to run. He almost made it to the, the door of his house. He was shot again. Um, and remarkably, he, he he actually survived. He ended up in hospital. He was able to give an account of what had happened to him and um he died uh, a few months later in september of 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 1919 and that was one of the, the, the key reasons, actually, that larger calibre revolvers were issued to the squad because they didn't want the, the same thing happening again. So, again, you can see in the story of, of, of Patrick Smith and later ones like Philip John O'Sullivan, I mentioned, I suppose, that progression. And in certain ways, I suppose, the professionalisation of, of, of the likes of the squad in terms of the activities that they were carrying out. And you get a a, a sense of that within the book one
1: of the most dramatic days in this in the war of independence was bloody sunday in 1920 and you get a great insight and a new perspective on bloody sunday through looking at uh, the burials in glasnevin
3: yeah it 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 may be surprising to people i think how the cemetery itself and the stories of those buried there encompasses that day in its entirety and that goes right through from the morning and the shootings that occur throughout the city. Um, Patrick McCormick and Leonard Wilde, who are buried in the cemetery, they were both shot at the Gresham Hotel. And then after that, obviously, you have the events at, at Croke Park and the shootings that, that that occur there. And the majority of, of people who are killed at Croke Park are also buried in in the cemetery, um, and that progresses through then to the evening as well, where you have the killings of um, uh, Dick McKee and Patrick Clancy um, in in Dublin Castle, who are who are buried in in the Republican Plot. And subsequently, then people like Paddy Moran, who was involved in that um shooting at the at, at the Gresham, what was executed for a completely different shooting um, on, on Bloody Sunday, is also uh, buried in the cemetery, so you can get a sense of the day in its in its entirety uh, by by exploring those stories sometimes you had cases of mistaken identity and uh
1: they, I suppose, they bring home just how uh, traumatic this was. That people
3: uh, thought that the dead body was their husband, and, and it turns out not to have been. Yeah, you can you can imagine. I suppose at the time when you have, particularly when you have big incidents within the city where a number of people are killed, um, the panic that can ensue from that, and certainly one of the biggest incidence was was that of the the burning of 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 the custom house in 1921 and you have obviously during that burning um fighting occurring and firing happening between the auxiliaries and other british forces who were surrounded the area and the members of the the IRA who were taking part in the in the burning and in the midst of all of that obviously a number of of civilians are are killed and one of the bodies that is brought to the morgue is unidentified it doesn't have any identification on it and one woman uh, named Bridget Kelly goes to the morgue her husband is missing, um, she sees this body, identifies the body as his um, and claims it and goes up to the offices of Glass Nevon in uh, what was Rutland Square now Parnell Square, and organizes the funeral to go to the grave of her her grandfather in in Glanevon and also then uh, employs an undertaker and buys a, a shirt for him to be to be laid out in. And as all of this is happening, she receives a letter from her husband, uh, who is in Arbour Hill detention barracks. And he's asking her to send him some socks and some tobacco. And obviously she's quite confused by this, is wondering exactly what's, what's going on. And she goes up there. She doesn't have a pass, so she's not allowed in. But she does give a blank piece of paper and ask the guard to find this James Kelly, ask him to write down the names of all their children in order and the paper comes back with all the names correct, so she realises she's made a terrible mistake and rushes back to try and uh, write it. And as it turns out, uh, that man was actually a man named John Byrne, who uh, had uh, regularly cycled back and forth past the custom house on his, on his way to work, and he was correctly, correctly identified and, and buried by, by his family. But it gives you a sense, I suppose, of some of those stories they might not expect to, to come out in the midst of it all.
1: And also how civilians were very much caught up in the conflict and were sometimes tragic casualties in it. And you see it with the Dwan Robinson family where uh, three civilian members, uh, three civilians in the family killed in
3: separate incidents. Absolutely. You can see that particularly in some of those incidents in, in Dublin with the, the ambushes and the, the, the firing that, that occurs and the civilians are caught up in it. And certainly the, the Dwan uh, Robinson family is Quite unusual and and probably unique in that you have three civilian members of the one family who are killed in completely separate incidents um within within the city and Edward Dwan who died in July of 1922 during the Battle of Dublin he was struck by a bullet which, which actually went through him and killed his friend Patrick Meehan, uh, on 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 the other side of him who's also buried in Glasnevin and prior to that his nephew William Robinson who was aged 11 was killed in Croke Park on Bloody Sunday And a few months before that, again, um, his uh, brother-in-law, who was also called William Robinson, was killed in a separate incident in in Capel Street. So you can imagine, I suppose, within the space of, of, you know, a year and a half or so, you have a situation where a family has lost three members um, who were not combatants. And you do see within the cemetery other cases of family members, the McKenna brothers, for example, who were killed on the same day with the National Army down in Cork, um, or the O'Reillys who were two brothers killed uh, at at the Custom House or, who are um, uh, members of the, the, the IRA but it's very unusual to have that situation where, where three civilian family members are, are all killed in different incidents How difficult was it to research all of these lives and to tell their stories? Um it wasn't without its difficulties. Um, there's been great progress, obviously, in terms of the, the the amount of digitization. the great work that's going on. In the military archives obviously helped hugely in terms of trying to to trace some of the the stories. But there was a lot of tying together, I suppose, different pieces of the puzzle and trying to trying to patch um, some sense of exactly what happened. Because ultimately, our registers are complete and they give a great sense of everybody who is buried in the cemetery. But often all you will have is a a name, an address, uh, an age, and a, a cause of death. So to really give us that sense of exactly what had happened, and particularly I suppose to give those stories and accounts and narratives of those who who survived and witnessed what had happened, and um, there was quite quite a bit involved in it. But it was a fascinating project, and I think if anybody's going through it, like we like we said uh, at the at the beginning it's good to kind of read behind the lines and get that sense of how the conflict is told through these through these biographies okay well it's a remarkable piece of research and you bring the
1: stories really Back to life, and I think it brings home uh, the trauma and the tragedy of the War of Independence and the Civil War. So, Connor, congratulations!
3: Thank you very much.
1: The book is called "Casualties of Conflict: Fatalities of the War of Independence and Civil War in Glasnevin Cemetery." Published in hardback by Mercier Press, and the author there talking to me, Connor Dodd. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Maysa Sullivan, and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been talking history. Good night.